Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Ryan Eras. Right, yeah, yeah. All right, we got it. Okay, we're good? good? Yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, have some... Party on, Wayne. Okay. That's all right. Thanks for your patience, everybody. No one walked out? No. That's pretty good. Almost. Good. Yeah. Good almost. sign. I, I almost did, but then I decided <laughs> You found me a mic, so I thought it'd stay. Yeah. 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 You bring your own? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> bring your own mic. Wherever you go. <laughs> Are we okay? All right. Thanks. Is that going to go? That might the, be distracting. Is that going to go in the background? <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> I didn't you think so, but you just yeah, we we'll just have to deal with it. Fine. All right. Um, right. So yes, are we live? Because your face is all lit up by the sun. You look like you have the aura of. Mm. Oh yeah. That must mean we're live. Like, <laughs> he yeah. is a Scientologist. Um, <laughs> 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 I told good. you that in confidence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All, right. all good. I think so. Thanks, Andre. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome to the podcast for cultural reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is uh, this is something we don't often or ever do, but we're here at the 2021 Runner Academy with a live audience of delegates, and we are so pumped to have you all here. Jonathan's our resident mathematician this week, and he informs me that we've got an infinity uh, amount of increase <laughs> over our regular live audience, which is pretty good, right? <laughs> He's nodding. Yeah. All right. Anyway, we are, we are pumped to be here this summer. We are glad to have you with us. And I'm joined by Nathan Oblack and Joe Boot, as usual. I've also got with us a couple of our faculty members, Wesley Huff and Andre Schutten. Uh, it's good to be here. Gents, welcome, mm. uh, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Academy. Both of you are veterans of, uh, of the programs, and we're, we're really grateful that uh, you're sitting in with us this evening. So what, uh, what I thought we'd do to sort of start off is just get into the question of who was Evan Runner, why do we have a program named for him, and what's, uh, what's the point of this week, and what's the point of the, uh, the kind of training that, that we've been able to focus on? Joe, if I, can, uh, if I can throw that over to you, just tell us a little bit about Evan Runner. Sure. So um, uh, each Evan Runner, uh, as he went by, was uh, an American uh, Christian philosopher. Uh, he taught at Calvin, actually, for uh, a while, um, uh, Christian philosophy. And uh, he was um, noteworthy for a, for a few reasons. One of which was that he was uh, one of the one of a few um, uh, Christian thinkers in North America who was influential in bringing the insights of the reformational philosophical tradition from the Netherlands uh, to the United States and Canada. 
and uh, there were there were a, f- a few others, but uh, he was prominent amongst them in the middle of the 20th century. And in particular, he uh, was involved in a series of conferences in Unionville in, I think it was the 1960s, actually, mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, reformational thought, reformational philosophy, uh, which was the really the brainchild of uh, two philosophers in the Netherlands, Herman Doyerverd and um, Dirk Vollenhoven. Um, and um, they were really standing in the tradition of a, of a famous Christian statesman and thinker called Abraham Kuyper, whose name would be more well known to you than names like Vollenhoven and Doyerverd, mm-hmm. um, as Andre likes to call him Father Abraham, <laughs> and I like that, so I've used that as well. Uh, and, and Abraham Kuyper was um, following in the reformed tradition of John Calvin and uh, was really involved in a really, in a, uh, I would have called it a, a revival, really, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the Netherlands, um, but also was instrumental in the founding of the anti-revolutionary mm-hmm. uh, party. Uh, the There were thinkers there in, and statesmen in the 19th century who were responding to the fallout of the French Revolution in Europe, and they founded um, a Christian party, in fact, uh, Abraham Kuyper actually served as prime minister for a few years as well of the Netherlands. So mm-hmm. I don't know how he found the time to be a pr- professor. He founded the Free University of Amsterdam. Newspapers. Uh, he founded newspapers. A bunch of newspapers. Unbelievable. He had a whole uh, bunch of children too, didn't he? He did. Yeah. yeah. yeah he had many sons, did yeah. Father Abraham. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know how, quite how these men pulled it off in those days that the amount that they actually uh, achieved in the, t- the time that they had. They weren't on Twitter as much. They weren't on mm. Facebook as much. That is for sure. And I I think they had, they also had wives who, you know, let them do that. I mean, you know, could you get away with not being, I mean, we're much more involved as men today in the raising of our kids. I think that's just three gold stars that, do you really, don't you think? Yeah, well we, Thank you. I mean, I used to bathe my, you know, babies too. So we're much more involved than earlier generations in that. So they, they got away with a bit, these guys, but um, uh, founding a university and actually, um, Doyerverd, Herman Doyerverd, uh, was uh, taught actually Christian philosophy at the Free University, and um, together with his um, actually brother-in-law, uh, Dirk Vollenhoven, um, developed a distinctly Christian approach to philosophy. And that influenced uh, others on the American continent, like um, Cornelius Van Til. In fact, uh, Doyverd and Van Til were, to some degree, conversation partners. And so if you've been tracking with the Ezra Institute for a while, you will know the influence of presuppositional apologetics on us. So it's all in that sort of general stream of thought. And Evan Runner um, was educated under some of these men and um, was interested in presuppositional apologetics and the uh, Christian philosophy uh, of the Netherlands. And um, he did these series of conferences or was involved in a series of conferences here in Unionville to introduce this distinctly reformational way of thinking to a young generation of Canadians. And there was a good deal of enthusiasm at the time. And out of it actually did come an institution that 
how much I should say now about the Institute for Christian Studies, but the Institute eventually out of it developed the Institute for Christian Studies. Sadly, by the mid eighties, uh, Evan Runner was already um, disappointed uh, by the direction of that institution. And today it's really declined steeply. So uh, that's been a bit of a sad story in part, um, uh, what's happened there. Um, but nonetheless, we're, we feel like as an institute, we have the privilege of carrying the torch of reform thinking that mm. I said in my opening lecture actually this week is indebted to the Reformation, to Calvin and to the English Puritans and to the, the Dutch Reformation really and, mm. and revival of um, uh, an evangelical form of faith. And uh, Kuiper really helped introduce evangelicalism, reformed evangelicalism to the idea of a Christian world and life view. Mm. And Doyerwood picks that up and develops it significantly and summarizes the biblical world and life view as creation in Christ, our fall into sin in Adam, and uh, our redemption in the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit as a summary of um, the root of a biblical world and life view, which might sound rather mundane, but it influenced mm. a lot of people like, uh, how many of you remember Francis Schaeffer in the audience mm. um, and have heard of him? So yeah, many. Francis, yeah. Francis yeah. Schaeffer, that's a lot of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, was deeply influenced by this tradition. He mm. read uh, Cornelius Van Til extensively. He read uh, Ruckmacher on the arts. He read Hermann Doyerwerd. And a lot of his significant insights at the popular level in helping people understand Christian apologetics and culture would derive from this uh, tradition. Um, and then others um, such as R.J. Rashtuni as well picked up Doyerwerd's critique of statism and deployed that effectively. So mm. Runner sits in in there, he's not very well known. Mm. And that's actually why we chose his name because we thought somebody unknown doesn't have any baggage. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he was a, quite a quiet man, um, but just faithfully taught small groups of students to mm. think Christianly. Right. Uh, and Joe, just to pick up on that, yeah. I think it's important to clear up at, at the beginning here, but you've mentioned a few times reformational thinking. Yes. So what would you say to someone who says, well, I'm not really from a reformed background, so this this kind of conversation really isn't for me? Yeah. Well, the, the beauty of reformational thought is fundamentally about the, the root, the radix, the, the, the root of a religious world and life view. And so um, it's non-sectarian in that sense. Yes, it's indebted like all evangelicals, whatever stripe you are, you might be Baptist, Presbyterian, Reformed, Pentecostal, Charismatic, Anglican, whatever. You, we're all indebted to the Reformation. So in that mm. sense, we're reformational. Second, we should all be interested in the reformation of culture in terms of the word of God. Culture is simply what human beings make with God's creation. Grapes, that's creation. Mm. Wine, that's culture. So we're all engaged in cultural formation all of the time. Mm. And, but we're called to do that in terms of the word of God. So this is not about uh, styles of worship, modes of baptism, mm. um, ecclesiastical distinctives. This is about going to the root of the Christian world and life view. So whatever church tradition actually we're from, we can benefit from this mm. fundamentally thinking Christianly mm -hmm. um, in, in these terms. Uh, I think it's for, it's for all believers at different levels. There's the coffee table level, there's the sort of mm. university discussion level, and, and then there's the more academic level and we can be involved at the, uh, the degree to which we're comfortable mm -hmm. and equipped. Mm. 
Yeah, thanks, Joe. I hope that was helpful. Uh, it was helpful for me. I I hear this, you know, a couple times a month, and it's still helpful <laughs> to me. But uh, a couple. <laughs> I don't always listen. <laughs> um, I, we we've got, as I said, we've got a, a live audience of fine young people here, and if we can be involved in some way in carrying forth. Uh, Evan Runner's ambition and the reformational tradition of thinking Christianly, as uh, as you put it, Joe, uh, will be very grateful. I, I don't want to dwell too long on all of this uh, because we have some questions from our audience, from our mm -hmm. delegates that we want to get to. Mm -hmm. But uh, I want to open this up to everyone on the panel that uh, as you're talking about uh, Christian philosophy and so Christian uh, Christian thinking. Uh, it just uh, it just strikes me that the idea of scholarship uh, generally and study generally, uh, not uh, not specifically about Christian things, but mm. in a Christian way, is a uh, a distinction that I, I bears some uh, some teasing out. So again, if I I'll open it up and, to Anika. and that could be a big shift for for many people. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, like just just to think that. There, there's a Christian way to do and to think about everything. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a Christian way to think about, you know, totally mundane things, as right. you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, I can summarize it real quick and then pass it on to <laughs> these guys to, 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 to say something. Um, I think that uh, there's a difference between, basically what we're saying, there's a difference between thinking about think Christian things mm -hmm. like Bibles and church services and prayer meetings and even Christian dogmas and having a Christian mind. Having a Christian mind is thinking Christianly about everything that is grounded in the world and life view, if we can continue to use that language. I mean, some people have accused Doyavert of inventing the idea of a, a world and life view. Mm. Um, you don't need to use that language. You could talk about vision, perspective, um, plausibility, structure, whatever you want to use, but it's mm. a helpful metaphor. Mm -hmm. um, there's, you know, two metaphors in the Bible that have, uh, for, you know, revelation and understanding or knowledge, epistemology, and it's seeing, but also hearing. Um, but the framework, if you will, with in which Christians need to think. For a long time, um, very, very quickly, and this is a, just a very, very quick sketch, but and, and it's superficial. However, in general, you have to remember that the Christian faith um, was preached into a pagan Gentile world. Uh, and the, the Western tradition has sometimes been referred to as footnotes to Plato in the way people think about life. Um, and has been, and even the Christian church was deeply shaped and informed. We might in some respects say that the medieval culture of Europe was a synthesis culture. It synthesized its Greek uh, philosophical inheritance with Christianity. And um, the church fathers like Augustine openly talked about trying to shake themselves free from some of these assumptions that, that they carried with them from their former lives and former understanding. And uh, you know, Western culture, even to this day, has never really fully shaken free of some of those um, pagan assumptions and uh, certainly thought forms. And so actually the, the very notion of having a distinctly Christian philosophical outlook um, 
is somewhat foreign. We tend to think as Christians of theology is something that Christians do. Philosophy is something that non-Christians do. It's like the non-Christian version of theology, but that's not correct. Uh, we actually bring philosophical assumptions to our reading of the Bible and to our theological enterprise, like ideas about the soul, eternity, uh, unity and, and, and multiplicity and so on. These ideas that uh, come up in philosophy do actually inform and shape the way we do our theology. And we have to make sure that our philosophical ideas are equally grounded in scripture. Mm. So I think the uniqueness of the contribution of um, this reformational tradition mm -hmm. uh, was to say that uh, actually we need to start um, thinking in robustly, distinctly Christian ways with a Christian, uh, robustly biblical starting point. The Reformation really tried to do that in theology and with regard to the church, um, but it was very quickly that rationalism uh, that was there before took over again, and actually even the Puritans at Cambridge, it went Platonist, and it kind of lost its bearings in a biblical outlook. And so this is a, a self-conscious attempt to say, how do we think Christianly about everything? Not just think about Christian things, that's not having a Christian mind. You can be have a humanistic mindset and think about Christian things, but how do we think distinctly Christianly in terms of robust biblical foundations about everything and and that's the about art science philosophy law politics education how can that all be shaped and informed by the fullness of the gospel and uh, so there is a there is a gospel way if you will there is a kingdom way of doing philosophy christian apologetics theology mm. textual criticism all mm. of these things you can be a uh, uh, a secular, humanistic textual critic of the Bible. Just because you're looking at the Bible doesn't mean you have a Christian mind. Mm. Yeah. Andre. No, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, one example of, of thinking Christianly about other things or even thinking Christianly about Christian things, take for example, uh, I don't know why this popped in my head, but it did, so I'm gonna run with it. Um, take for the example, um, a Canadian Christian's uh, engagement with or, or observance of, of the Sabbath, or well, more correctly, the Sunday. Uh, how do we treat mm. our, our day of rest? Um, most Christians or a majority of Christians today, um, how they treat the Sunday, how they, uh, what they do on that Sunday is more informed by the cultural moment in which they are, uh, that they are in compared to how most Christians for most of Christian history have ever dealt with it. And that's because in 1985, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down our Lord's Day Act. So mm. in 1985 and years before in Canada, there was no uh, there's no work on Sundays. People could relax. They could rest. They could worship uh, at church. Um, or if they didn't like going to church, they didn't have to go to church, but they didn't have to work in retail and those kinds of places. The Supreme Court of Canada said because of uh, the new charter at the time, they struck down that law as being sectarian, as being a, a overtly religious um, law, and they struck it down. And, and since then, you know, stores and supermarkets and uh, retail outlets and, and everything else have opened up and and that seeps into the consciousness of uh, both non-christians and christians in canada and so now now today people say they look outside their window and they say oh people just do whatever they want to do on a on a sunday um so because it is therefore it ought to be instead of thinking well just because it is is it the way it ought to be and and what we need to do to figure out the ought is we have to go back to scripture see how how does that inform what we should do or shouldn't do uh on a sunday hmm. go ahead. Yeah. yeah i think it's an interesting question as 
a PhD student at a secular university mm-hmm. doing, even though it's technically a, a PhD in theology, but realistically my studies are historical observations far more than they are theological ones. Mm-hmm. And actually my thesis advisor is an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can see that even among people who profess to not believe in God, there are, Charles Taylor talks about the the cracks in the transcendental ceiling. Mm -hmm. They're operating even in just the inquiry, inquiry, man, easy for me to say, investigation (laughs) of things that they find interesting. Mm -hmm. I mean, where does that come from? That, that comes from a theological, theological assumption that those things are worth looking Mm -hmm. into Mm -hmm. and they're not operating on just being matter in motion. They're operating as if these studies matter more than they are matter. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, and they as individuals matter more than they are matter. And that's why the pursuit of even what seems like, you know, mundane scribal habits in a 2000 year old scrap of papyrus, that pursuit is valuable because it adds to our cultural identity and who we are as humanity. I don't think they can escape the fact that they're living in a world, particularly in the West, where the Christian influence is just there. It's almost like um, the historian Tom Holland wrote a very interesting book called Dominion, not a believer, but talks about the fact that you cannot escape in the Western world, the influence of Judeo-Christianity. And he uses the illustration of the, uh, the, uh, after Chernobyl, the radioactive dust in the air. Everybody was trying to flee, but the dust was radioactive. It was just what they were breathing in. They didn't even know that it was there. And that the Christian influence in modern society, it doesn't come from the Greco-Roman culture. Mm-hmm. That culture was quite, quite harsh mm-hmm. and, and assumed certain things about hierarchies of individuals. Certain individuals should be slaves. Yep. The idea that we are all created in the image of God and that we have value and particularly intrinsic value, those are Christian ideals. Mm-hmm. You don't get that from any, any other worldly perspective, mm-hmm. either ancient or modern. Yep. You don't get it in Islam, you don't get it in Hinduism, you don't get it in secularism, you don't get it in natural materialism. Modern atheistic humanism is just borrowing yeah. from the building that is the Christian worldview yeah. with the intention to burn it down, but is, is very, very cautiously picking up those beams and then trying to construct a foundation for its own platform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good illustration of that is the, is the, is the Western view of history as well. Um, the way in which we s- see a sort of beginning, a real beginning in creation leading to recreation and end point and the sort of eschatological vision of the Mm. kingdom and how Marxism, which has become a very, very popular political philosophy in our culture, Mm. is just a de-Christianized version of the same thing. It's just an atheistic version. Man's going to become his own creator and he's going to bring about his own eschaton. Um, Mm. uh, Through his dominion mandate, through work, he's Mm. going to reach his own paradise, a stateless, work-free, you know, Mm. world. So you have... These are all inescapable concepts that we often talk right. about on, on the podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can't, you can't just shake free from them, but you mm. can't shake free from the, these men couldn't shake free from the influence of Christianity right. and of the biblical view uh, on them, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's, a, it's one of the fascinating things about creation that we emphasize in reformational thought, that we're bound by mm. God's laws and norms for creation. There's an inescapability uh, to it. And of course, it becomes more self-consciously articulated in Christian cultural environments, historically Christian cultural environments. And now we're in this bizarre process of trying to repeal mm -hmm all of that of that reality mm. in our in our laws right. and uh, it's producing tremendous spiritual uprootedness mm -hmm. as actually Doyvert would have said mm -hmm. yeah. yeah great well we see it in the pursuit of utopia Mm -hmm. yeah, pursuit of right. utopia is paradise lost. Mm -hmm. It's the echo of the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to get back through the moral means of working ourselves back. Mm -hmm. That's what that's what socialism is. It's an effort to create that utopia. Mm -hmm. But without the, the grounding for, you know, getting back to that relationship that provided utopia in the first place, mm -hmm. it's, it's never going to succeed because it's yeah. always going to be moralism yeah. mm -hmm. and moralism is dead. Right. Right. And it will always lead to slavery and death mm -hmm. always. Um, and I'm sure we could talk about these things well into the night, but, uh, Ryan mentioned earlier, uh, right now we've got, uh, some really special guests here in the runner hall with us. I almost said the Knox cellar, but the runner <laughs> hall, we've yeah. switched locations this week and, uh, some special guests. We've got 21 runner delegates with us. We've got, uh, volunteers. We've got our, our camera team. Uh, I think I heard Joe's dog Cromwell out in the lobby and we've even got Mike Thiessen over there in the corner. <laughs> so we're all here. <laughs> this is an ongoing joke. <laughs> Not the first time. <laughs> but we want to give our delegates here an opportunity to, uh, to pose some questions to the panel, get involved in the podcast. And uh, I believe we've got uh, Kristen with the first question. So we will pass her the mic and and go for it when you're ready. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen, for taking my question this evening and for this week. It's been wonderful so far. Um, so we've learned so far that all societies are religious to some extent or wholly religious. And we have studied how more or less our Western culture was built on Christian values and foundations, which had a basic acknowledgement that God was the source of morality and reality. Um, so my question has three parts. Um, could you summarize a key mistake we made, which caused us to lose this foundation of Christ as king, um, what or who has replaced Christ as king in our society, and what is the most effective thing that we can be doing or proclaiming um, to win culture back as Christians? Great. Thank you. Hmm. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I'm going to pick the easy one. <laughs> so um, I'd say that on your second question, what, is replaced, what has replaced Christ as king? Uh, I, th I think is a, a pretty easy one from my, my observation. Um, and that is, well, there's two and they're, they're constantly in tension um, is the self uh -huh. and the state, hmm. the self and the state. And so um, over the last, I don't say uh, about 300 years or so, we have this um, ongoing uh, philosophical and political development where all of the mediating institutions of society, um, the family, the church being the two big ones, uh, but also other mediating institutions, um, uh, economic uh, relationships between employers and employees, for example, um, the academy, the sciences, the mainstream media uh, or, or the media generally, mm. uh, these mediating institutions have become 
become less and less important. They've shrunk in importance in the eyes of the of the law or in the eyes of the state and in the eyes of citizens so that we only get the state, the big, huge state, and we get the individual floating around all on their own. And, and the individual is, is, is the autonomous one, uh, auto meaning self and nomos meaning law, so that the self law run uh, on their own and then the state growing and growing in, in size and in importance, self-importance. And so the citizen uh, either worships themselves, tries to worship themselves, and at the same time relies on the state to take care of them from cradle to grave instead of putting all of their hope and trust in the sovereign one. Uh, that being uh, the king of kings and the lord of lords. So I'd say that's kind of the easy one to answer. It seems to me it's pretty clear once, when, once you start looking for it, you'll see that in all kinds of legal developments and political developments and in social cultural developments. Mm. Well, even in the French Revolution, they literally took down the religious icons and put up an altar to reason. Mm-hmm. Notre Dame. And yeah. in, in the cathedral in Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. And so that I don't think that was where it started, but that certainly was a, a very stark example of the idolatry of, you know, the self in terms of the mind mm-hmm. you know, saying we can reason ourselves into, mm-hmm. you know, it's, 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 it's a, a mental tower battle yeah. reaching up to God. And in fact, we are God because we, mm. we derive the end results of our own purpose and meaning. And that collapsed very quickly, particularly in France. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I think, I think we can see the, the impacts of, of the significance of things like the enlightenment where we, we started to pull away at the foundation stones of the society that was built upon a Judeo Christian foundation. Mm -hmm. And it didn't get us to enlightenment and utopia. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it broke down all of the morals that allowed us to create those foundations and those conclusions to begin with. Mm -hmm. I think part of all of that, uh, was the, the gradual sort of privatization of our faith and the and mm. the trunk one of the mistakes is the truncation of mm. the gospel which probably uh, and i think certainly was to some degree rooted in a theological mistake uh, that again was influenced by philosophy uh, faulty philosophy um in what we theologians talk about as the scholastic tradition you had this nature grace separation Mm -hmm. and nature was granted some degree of autonomy from god man's reason maybe wasn't as fallen as his as the rest of him uh and so um the he he, his thinking was okay as far as it went but he needed this super added gift of grace to bring him to salvation and actually that's connected to statism because the pagans uh saw and as did the scholastics really saw that in the state the the highest point in terms of a hierarchy within nature was the state that brings you it's to help you to get to the you know a higher degree of morality but it couldn't save you there you need the church and grace uh, to be added as an added gift and um, that in a certain sense allowed nature eventually to sort of go its own way this false dualism between a supernatural grace realm and then this autonomous realm of, of nature and eventually it leads to a kind of secularization uh, gradually where uh, grace it gets pushed off into the life of the church that's the churchy thing and everything else is just neutral so uh, nature education law politics the arts these are all governed 
governed by, well, reason um, and, you know, common uh, um, natural law by things that are just there. They're in this sort of independent realm. And the realm of grace is the church and your spiritual disciplines and your personal devotional life, which are all really important. And that's the, re that's the realm of grace. You don't have to worry about this nature area so much because really it doesn't count for much. It's mm -hmm. the, what really matters is your personal salvation in the evangelical version of this. And so what happened is the gospel of the kingdom starts to get tr truncated to such an extent that instead of it impacting all of life, mm. it's, it's funneled in a very kind of Western secular way right, into right. your private world of your personal spirit. And people still talk about that, don't they? Your, you know, our friends and colleagues, they talk about their personal spiritualities, though it's a sort of, you know, you go to church, I play golf, uh, you know, what do you do with your Sunday? You know, I, I go to yoga class and they mm -hmm. think they're making some sort of equivalent kind of a claim. Um, and our faith gets uh, limited to between our ears and mm -hmm. inside the four walls of the church. And right. I think that was a huge mistake. And part of it was the separation of creation and redemption. Mm -hmm. Nature, that nature grace distinction is, a, is, a, is an attempt really to drive, it drives a wedge between creation and redemption. So rather than seeing the problem of sin as cosmic in scope, uh, that it affects everything, the fall uh, total depravity doesn't mean every person is as depraved as they could be, but that it's affected everything. And that the scope of redemption is the scope of the fall. Mm. It, it is there that Christ is reconciling all things to himself and, and he's redeeming the totality of our lives, not just some limited, narrow, minimal area. Now, as we have ecclesiasticized the faith, that is imprisoned it in the life of the, the church and our personal devotional life, we've actually called forth the secularization of the world. If you ecclesiasticize the Bible, the word of God and our faith, and say, well, it's a church book and our faith is for this ecclesiastical realm, obviously you then call forth the secularization of everything else. So we've actually contributed to that by our, our retreat. And so part of the answer, which maybe we can all comment on briefly, but I would say is the, is the recovery first of this holistic vision of the gospel of the kingdom. And then it's the cultivation and the building again of Christian institutions, mm -hmm. newspaper, well, newspapers, websites, <laughs> used to read newspapers, uh, um, Christian schools and universities, the development of, of, um, uh, of, again, of Christian music, not in the sense of a ghetto of, I listen to Christian radio, uh, you know, uh, but, but the, you know, I, I'm sure Handel and Bach didn't think of themselves as doing that. How can I write a really nice Christian piece? You know, they were just writing music and uh, or were commissioned to write it and it sort of just flowed out of them as believers and so this notion again that we need to take our the, the faith and the assumptions of the word of God into every single area of life needs to be recovered and that necessarily Im involves to recover the situation and it's a multi-generational process mm -hmm. as was the building of Christendom mm -hmm. is the, re re the rebuilding of Christian institutions Mm. Yeah. And I think because evangelicals haven't been thinking that way for so long, it really explains a lot of the anger and the confusion in society when a pastor says the state's not Lord of the church, Christ is. Mm -hmm. and, and much of society just is shocked right. by that statement. Right. Well, I think we started taking very lightly handing over particular areas of our society to Caesar mm -hmm. and then being shocked when everybody came back as Romans. That's right. Mm, right. And whether that was the arts, whether that was education, whether that was philosophy, whether that was um, 
uh, a narrative on origins, you know, whatever it was, we started capitulating on mm-hmm. things that at the time, I'm sure they didn't think were that important, mm-hmm. but as Rome took more and more land from the, mm-hmm. the from Christendom, individuals just started, you know, do as the Romans do. Mm-hmm. So uh, mm-hmm. we, we started gradually. And I think with the push of, of liberalism, particularly liberalism in Germany, which was an outpouring of a lot of the uh, enlightenment, yeah. I think their, their desire was to guard the church from embarrassment mm-hmm. on things like origins or on things like miracles. Or mm-hmm. so we, we start capitulating and saying, you know, I don't, I, I want people to become Christian. I want them to know the peacemaker. And so I start eroding these particular things because I don't want that to be embarrassing. And ironically, what it did, it is it just undercut mm-hmm. the foundation of what those things stood for to begin with. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, I think it's maybe time to move on to another delegate's question, unless there's anything okay. we want to add. Okay, so Jonathan in the back corner there has the next question for us. All right, thank you. I have a bit of a big one here, fourteen lines, but because uh, uh, there's a bit of a there's a bit of uh, yeah. Uh, but here here we go. So on uh, Dr. Boot on the first day, uh, you were talking about how both the East and the West, as we already talked about, have this uh, dualism uh, with spiritual and abs- kind of abstract things higher versus the material being lower, and and their effort to transcend uh, again, as we've been talking about, and and uh, you know as that was the scu- the discussion. I couldn't help but think about the heavens and the new earth and the the, the kind of the hope that we have, the future hope as well as, uh, and I was looking up the, the, the passage in Hebrews 8, uh, the discussion of the things that the Israelites had, uh, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. And of course, uh, you know, Moses was shown uh, the pattern of, of what to, to replicate on earth. So those those kind of passages and, and stories certainly um, uh, maybe on face is kind of smack of the platonic, uh, like, you know, there's the, the independent existence of the ideal a pattern versus the real thing and so uh i hope you just comment on on these things uh we you know we have this future hope of the new heavens and the new earth uh there seem to be these real realities is the dualism uh that that is the you know this problematic uh stuff in the culture uh a cor- corruption or uh, replacement of the of the future hope that we have uh, you know and their uh, attempt to attain to the and, and the re- reconciliation uh, attain to re- uh, attain to it by by human means so yeah i hope you comment on all that <laughs> Yeah, there, there have been a, uh, attempts to interpret Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, in a sort of Platonic way. Um, and, uh, you know, the book of Hebrews was, I think, likely written by um, a collection of the apostles, probably. I mean, it's often attributed to Paul. I think it was, it's, it's, it's apostolic, but I think it may well have been several of the apostles uh, contributing to it. Um, the uh, Moses is given a, a clear instructions about the temple, and um, there are important things about. I mean, first of all, it's important to remember that when we speak about heaven, heaven is part of creation. Uh, you know, because we we think of it as the place of the angels and so on. It's it's, it's tempting to think of heaven as some sort of eternal reality. Mm. Uh, but actually, heaven is a created place. And, and today, the Bible says, actually, that there's also conflict in the heavenlies. 
right? Because it's a place of spiritual conflict. Um, and so the, the, um, the reality I think that the, the, the writer is driving at is that when we think about the work of Christ, scripture says he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And that uh, when we think about the ceremonial law and the temple and the, um, the temple in many respects is a copy of Eden as well. So, you know, all the decorations on the robes of the priest and the way the temple was, I mean, if you look at all the detail, the instruction, I mean, you can get, you can sometimes ask, you know, why all this detail about the temple in the Bible? But it's mm. actually very significant because it's, it's an echo of Eden. There it's in the Holy of Holies, you've got the angel guarding the way, it's guarding the, 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 the presence of God. So it's an echo there of the cherubim uh, who was sent to guard Eden. And the high priest is only able to go in once a year. Um, and so Moses is, is given the instructions of how to build the temple. But actually today we're told, Hebrews tells us that Christ um, enters into the heavenly uh, a tabernacle where he sprinkles his own blood on the mercy seat. And there's a certain amount of mystery there, exactly what that looks like and, and, and what that means. Um, but it, it does tell us, I think, fundamentally that all of life is religious, <laughs> right? From, from Eden, uh, right through our calling and service in the earth, we, we, we occupy an office and we have a calling. So we have a responsibility. I talked in the first session, I think about promise and command. Uh, and that um, Christ's redemptive work has cosmic significance for the totality of creation, which includes the, 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 the world that we can't see, as well as the world that that we can. So I don't think heaven introduces some kind of uh, dualism. In fact, um, uh, we were talking about this over, um, over supper, actually, Wes and I, uh, um, I was discussing the fact that so often we, uh, even in our language of the supernatural, we talk about, oh, I'm, you know, we've got to remember the supernatural realm. Actually, that's right out of Greek philosophy, mm. uh, a, a realm uh, above nature, as though you've got nature down here and then supernature up here. No, there's creation. It's all God's creation. Mm. And actually the supernatural should be, what we call the supernatural should be completely normal to us in the sense that, you know, isn't it a miracle every day that the, the sun rises, that the universe doesn't fly apart, that mm -hmm. all things hold together mm -hmm. by his powerful word. Um, what we call miracles actually in the Bible usually called signs because it's just God doing something slightly different than the way he normally does it. Mm. Uh, this mm. vision, this, this notion that we have of a miracle being, you know, the world is running, the universe is running in a mechanical way. And then God occasionally gets a sort of huge divine monkey wrench, sticks it in the cogs of the universe, does something else, and then pulls it out again so it go, uh, runs on its own. That, that's not the biblical image of what we call the supernatural. Um, God uh, does certain things as signs, signs and wonders to remind us who he is because the, because the, the miracle of every day becomes familiar. Doesn't it? It becomes mundane. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes God will do something somewhat differently. So um, we do have to be mindful of the danger, even when we think about, you know, we've talked about it already a little bit this week, but this notion of, you know, the goal of the Christian life is when I die. I mean, Andrew Sandlin really had a good go at that. Uh, you know, it's about my soul is saved so that when I die, I go to heaven. It really just is not a biblical idea. 
The Bible just doesn't teach that. Um, what it teaches is that I have died and my life is hid together with Christ in God now, and I'm already seated in heavenly places. It's about my position in Christ. And that the goal of, of redemption is the restoration of all things. It's the recreation and it's the resurrection. So that the inner man and outer man are of a piece and uh, the the life of the new creation uh, is, and I always, and I, I correct my kids all the time, all the time on this uh, when, I, when I talk about the, when we talk about the final state, because it's just it's part of the normal evangelical everyday language. Heaven going to heaven. No, the king, the heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven so that God's dwelling is with us. And this is the this is the marvel. And it's and now it's true that the veil that separates the the waters above from the waters beneath, maybe that glassy sea up there is removed. <laughs> And there will be an insight that we do not have now mm -hmm. that, that uh, you know, Jacob's ladder, you know, he mm -hmm. saw the angels of God going up and down. Of course, it's going to be no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived mm -hmm. what God has prepared for those who love him. But it will be this world that, he, that is released from its bondage to corruption and decay. Mm -hmm. And so we have to, I think, part of the reformational mindset is that we reject all dualisms that try to slice up reality into bits and pieces and order them in a hierarchy so that we start to see the body and marriage and family and sexuality and our vocation as lesser, inferior aspects of life. Uh, they're not. This is what it means to be human. And Jesus Christ today is a man, flesh and blood, in heaven mm. at the right hand of God. Mm -hmm. 72 billion human cells at the right hand of God. Is that mm. what it is? 72 mm. billion? I think mm. It's billion or trillion. I think it's billion. 72 billion mm. human cells in an adult body. Yeah. Mm. It's, all, it's also just worth noticing, at least it's worth it to me. Um, we talk about, we use the language of new heavens and new earth. Well, new doesn't make any sense unless there's an old, unless there's something to compare it to. Hmm. Like you don't, uh, you don't recognize something as being new unless you already know what the old is right. and you can compare like with like. Mm -hmm. Great. And we have echoes of this within our culture related to the previous question of this theology of the human person. And a stark example of that, I think, is in a couple of weeks, the Olympics are going to start. Right. The second most populous country in the world, India, has very few Olympic athletes. Now, why is that? They have so many people. Well, part of it is that they have a concept of dualism. They have a concept that the physical is just an illusion. Right. And so even something mm -hmm. physical like yoga is a spiritual practice, not a physical one. Mm -hmm. The end result mm -hmm. is not to get more flexible. The end result of true Hindu Yogic. yogi mm -hmm. um, or yoga is a spiritual one. It's to mm -hmm. seek enlightenment and, mm -hmm. and realize that you are just in this cycle of karma. And mm -hmm. once you come to that realization through these practices, you're going to be released from that body. Mm -hmm. And 
even then, the few Olympic athletes that do stand out from India, um, believe it or not, I had a short-lived Bollywood career. And the one movie that I I starred in was about uh, an Olympic athlete from India. named. You were in a Bollywood movie. I was in a Bollywood (laughs) movie. No, no, no. no. We're We're, we're trying to catch up here. Give us a moment. (laughs) We'll make everybody suffer through a a three-hour DVD of Bognal Kabbalah. Were you hiding behind trees and sort of popping (laughs) out? Yeah. But what's interesting about that is that his coach in real life was a Christian missionary. Okay. And... Mm. The reason why that was so significant was because he had imported this theology of the human body that it was it was not only useful to study and strive for spiritual things, but also for physical things Mm. because of the theology of the whole human person. Mm. That wasn't that's not an Indian idea. That's a Western Christian idea. Mm -hmm. And that was brought into that context and drove this particular particular athlete, Milka Singh, to pursue what yeah. he ended up doing. Well, the so, affirmation of the body and all that, of course, helped with the development of Western medicine. Mm. All of the, there actually many of the developments are tied to the fact that there was, there is in Christian theology, the image of God, mm. the value of the body. Let's take the 1920s example. Tell me that you've seen chariots of fire. <laughs> yeah. And some of you haven't. Okay, that is a must watch this week. We've got a copy here, right? It's about the 1920s Olympic Games. Have you, how many of you heard of the missionary to China, Eric Liddell? Yes. Okay, so the mm-hmm. Scottish missionary to China. And there's a marvelous line in that film, which you've just reminded me of in saying that, uh, where he's talking to his sister about the fact that he's called, he, he's, he knows he's called to China as a missionary. And she is worried that his giftedness in sport, both in rugby and in athletics, is going to take him away from this calling Mm. and he says to her he says jenny god god has made me for a purpose for china and actually that is where he died in a in a concentration camp um but uh he said but he's also made me fast and when i run i feel his pleasure now that's a creational world and life view mm-hmm. right, that, that God rejoices in that it's an amazing film you must if you haven't seen it you must see it it, uh, it won multiple Oscars because mm-hmm. it's a true story mm-hmm. um, I, 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 it's interesting because when you said in a couple of weeks this is the Olympic at the Olympics I thought you're going to make a very different point and 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 then when you jumped on the Olympics I'm like oh surely Joe's going to make this point and and he didn't because the other thing <laughs> is that because this has coming it's like you got to jump on this one because this Olympics what we're also going to have and this yep. goes to this mind body dualism or soul body mm-hmm. dualism mm-hmm. is the idea that the real you mm-hmm. is who you feel you are yep. or you think you are and not and, and that the physical has mm. absolutely zero impact on who you are. And so this Olympics, we're going to have a weightlifter mm. from New Zealand mm. who is biologically male uh, and who will probably crush all the female competition mm. in this Olympics because, as we should know, it's common sense, um, the, the average adult male is built uh, in such a way, God has designed the male body in such a way that it can lift on average, much more weight than a female body can. But because this individual representing New Zealand um, has a self sense of, or a self identity, a, a soul or a mind that is female, that's you know, trapped in a male body, uh, then the Olympic committee has um, 
to its shame, I think, and to the detriment of women and women's sport and women's equality, they have said, we will, we will prioritize this, your, your self sense of your soul's identity over the biological reality that's standing in front of us. And, and we'll enter you into the female category for weightlifting. Um, so there's very, hmm. there's profound implications for all kinds of things, including sport, when we don't think Christianly about sport and don't think Christianly about what it means to be human. Including hmm. the leotard he's going to be wearing. Oh. So <laughs> going to be, well, and, and I wasn't going to go there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to ignore that comment. When, <laughs> we, even, we, yeah. we even see the tension there because they're also regulating female track athletes' testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. So in right. one sense, they're saying... You know, this individual is a, a he, he was a genetic biological man for 30 years, competed as a male, mm-hmm. transitioned mm-hmm. and is now competing, competing as a female. Mm-hmm. And there are two athletes from an African nation who are 400 meter runners who have been told they cannot compete because they're natural testosterone. They're biological females, mm-hmm. but their natural testosterone is too high. And it's this very strange mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. dichotomy that doesn't actually make any sense mm-hmm. because you can't have that and this at the same time and also be saying that he should compete as a woman they can't compete as actual women mm-hmm. because they have a actual biological advantage yeah. it's a very strange thing and confusion that our culture is going through yeah mm. yeah, yeah. Well, when, you, when, when, you, when you're denying the, 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 the basic biological facts of the different lung capacities of mm-hmm. men and women, which makes one of the big differences in both the sprint and in distance running, if you get to the point where that no longer factors into people's thinking, I mean, you really have thrown over, I mean, the whole, this whole supposed love affair with reason mm-hmm. uh, that we've had, we've just thrown it overboard because the interior has become more important than the external world. Mm-hmm. And uh, that does definitely speak to that to, to that issue of the, the sort of radical artificial dualism that has been present in different forms in Western thought for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Christianity largely pushed it out, but it's come back with a vengeance because it's pagan thought, it's paganism. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, thank you for the question, Jonathan. And uh, I believe it was Micaiah that had the next question. Is that right? Great. And I know this podcast is going up live on social media now. Andre, you're a lawyer. How much longer is that going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> right. We'll see 10. Yeah, that's right. We'll see 10. Uh, we'll have a well, good 36. regulation on this and because of Joe's very Can we delete that comment. Yeah. comment. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. what's going to finish us. That's, that's right. it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, 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 it'll be yeah. gone before we even finish. <laughs> um, okay, so this question is kind of two-part, um, but basically... How does the gospel um, address corrupt government practices such as communist-like developments? Um, And then what should a Christian civic response be and how should we be praying about that? Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Um, The gospel, um, we we believe, is, is powerful. The, the word of God is a is a two-edged sword. It 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 can um, 
it can change a person radically. And so when we're talking about government uh, practices, corrupt government practice, practices, uh, the gospel has has a word, a word of warning for those kinds of things. We see it throughout scripture uh, where, where kings or leaders have done things, uh, they've done wrong. And, and so the word of God is brought to bear uh, in that situation. I'll give you one example. John the Baptist um, you know that uh, that theonomist John the Baptist. He, <laughs> he amen. <laughs> he, he he spoke up about um, Herod's. Um, He's in trouble now. Oh yeah, yeah. he he is. Um, so John the Baptist spoke up against uh, a corrupt practice that was actually not not just uh, the corrupt practices of a politician over his subjects, but a corrupt practice that the politician was engaging in his private life. Uh, King Herod was sleeping with his brother's wife. Um, and, and so he spoke out against that. He condemned that. And, and for that, he, he lost his head, literally. Um, we also see that in other, other parts of Scripture over and over again. I mean, read, read the, uh, the Old Testament, uh, the Torah, the, um, particularly the Pentateuch, uh, Deuteronomy. There's all kinds of prescriptions in there for how a king or a government should act. So if, if you read De Deuteronomy 17, for example, there's a prescription in there about the, the king of Israel must not uh, do a certain number of things. Um, the three things he must not do uh, relates to um, uh, having excessive a uh, number of wives, um, so against sexual sin, uh, an excessive uh, amount of war horses, so warmongering is a, is wrong for a king. Mm -hmm. And then um, the third thing, if I recall it correctly, I'm going off the top of my head here, was to never go back to Egypt. I think uh, that might have been related to the war horses. Oh, yeah, I'm no, sorry. The third one is excessive wealth. He wasn't to gather mm -hmm. excessive wealth, so high taxes and so on is also condemned. Sorry, the going back to Egypt is related to the war horses, God says to, to the Israelites. You are never to go back to Egypt. And, and that means both a geographic thing, don't go back to Egypt, but also means a tyranny thing. Don't submit yourself to the tyranny of Pharaoh, uh, whether that's down in Egypt physically or whether that's right there in Israel. Don't submit yourself to the tyranny of one man who says he's, he's God. Um, and, and so what you see actually is when you read the passage about Solomon, there's a, there's a short passage about Solomon where it lists all three of those things and he's done all three of those things wrong. It's just before Solomon pivots from being a wise king to being to his downfall. And it's a very short passage and it's a perfect mirror of this Deuteronomy 17 passage where what does Solomon do? He becomes the wealthiest man, gathers tons and tons of wealth through harsh taxes, we find out later. He gathers a thousand wives, 300 wives and 700 concubines, and he gathers together all kinds of war horses from Egypt. And so, so the word of God, um, I think speaks into situations like that. Uh, also today, whether it's communist um, regimes, um, it, the word of God can transform those things. And so when you look at, for example, Poland, if you look at the history of Poland in the 1980s, it's the word of God. It's the Christian movement in Poland in the 1980s that overthrows the communist uh, dictatorship there and brings about uh, democracy in Poland. It's not perfect. It's done in fits and starts and bumps and um, and so on and so forth. But, but it's that that can overthrow overcome corrupt um, governments. Mm. And I think uh, critically, and I dealt with it a little bit today, but the the recognition of, of Christ's lordship, uh, and I think, Andre, you touched on it too when you talked about the difference between Lex Rex and Rex mm -hmm. Lex. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you know, is law king or is uh, the king law? And um, one of the unique things about the... Uh, Older Testament material is that it uh, tells us that the kings were required to study the law of God. Yeah. 
God required them to study his law um, because they were to rule in terms of it. The king was under law. And of course, you see this with Nathan the prophet going to t King David with respect to his adultery as well and calling him to account. So that was unheard of in, in pagan antiquity. The, the notion that, that um, you could be ch challenged, uh, that a ruler could be challenged in this way in terms of a higher law and a higher authority. So there in Acts 17, the beginning of Acts 17, the gospel is being preached and the central to that proclamation of the gospel, the, the, the disciples are accused of saying that there is another king disobeying the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Mm. Now, why is it that in the Islamic world, in the communist world, Christianity is persecuted? Why don't they just leave it alone? Mm. What, what's the, what's, what, if, if, it's, it's, right. if it's a false religion, yeah. if it's got no power compared to Marxism or Islam, mm. why would you want to uh, stamp it out like Diocletian in the, the, the era of the early church? Uh, because it's a threat. Mm -hmm. It represents a threat to corrupt in tyrannical mm. social order. Mm. Much like the family today. Precisely. Mm -hmm. and, and because the, the Christian church, the Christian family, represents a threat to hmm. tyranny, to illegitimate rule, illegit, lawless rule. Um, uh, this is why Christianity is seen as, as dangerous. So, but the gospel transforms these situations because the gospel isn't just you personally can come to Jesus, uh, O King, and have your sins forgiven and go to heaven. Uh, actually, the gospel means you submit the entirety of your life Yes, your sins, personal sin can be cleansed, but that has implications for your rule. Prime minister, right? It's going to have implications. Judges, it's going to have implications. So Psalm 2, the great messianic psalm, mm -hmm. uh, says in verse 10, so now kings be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun. Or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment. All those who take refuge in him are happy. So this is uh, Lex Rex. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is king. That's central to the declaration of the gospel. And that has implications. And I teased some of those out today when we talked about the, the English constitutional arrangement and the oath of office of, of the queen, the coronation rights that we've seen historically, even the presidential oath of office in the US taken on a Bible. All of these things hark back to this recognition that the gospel means we are under God's law and, we're, and kings are required to study the law uh, of God. Mm. And that is, is the death knell of tyranny. It's one of the reasons actually, by the way, why um, the Geneva Bible was seen as such a threat to uh, kings in Europe. And actually even King James didn't like the Geneva Bible's commentary notes because they were a bit too much. The king is under law to God. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, Calvin, I think Knox and others who were commentating on the text. And he commissioned the translation of the King James Bible because he, he thought the Geneva Bible wasn't pro the king enough. <laughs> 
right? So uh, now King James Bible is a wonderful Bible and it's Shakespearean, Shakespeare picks up the language and of course it's a wonderful contribution, but that's the issue. It brings, and for for the English monarchy for a long time, that was seen as a threat to their power and their divine prerogative to be under God's law and to be accountable to it. That's part of the gospel. Mm-hmm. And that's why in Acts 17, it says they were turning the world upside down because mm-hmm. it was turning the pagan order upside down. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where the church needs to make sure that our doctrine of the sufficiency of scripture is not only proclaimed, but understood by the individual congregants. Mm -hmm. Because as I was talking about before, the liberalism that crept in, what it did is it undercut scripture Mm -hmm. and ended up giving more grounds to the secular society than it had any right to have. Right. I have a friend who likes to say, if you take Christ out of Christian, all you're left with is Ian. <laughs> and Ian's a great guy, <laughs> but he's not going to save you from your sins. And so we need to make sure as a church that we are both understanding what we believe and why we believe it in terms of our doctrine of scripture and its sufficiency and it's the, the weight that it holds mm-hmm. in the declaration of Christ internally in-house and then be able to communicate that outside to the society Mm -hmm. that this is our standard and this is the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And I think part of the question as well was what should we pray for? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think that uh, there's all kinds of things we should be praying for, um, uh, as it relates to this. But one, one of the things that we can be praying for is that, that Christians first, Um, and eventually the rest of our society understand how the gospel applies to all of life, including law and politics, and that they see it not as um, as a, a, an oppressive burden, but as the liberty that it is, the grace and the gift that it is, that it sets us free. And then uh, another a prayer would be that more and more Christians would be engaged in law and politics mm-hmm. because there's mm-hmm. a uh, there's no, just not enough that are getting engaged in that. Some see it as as icky, as something that's you know dirty, and we you know it's not for Christians to get their hands dirty with. But but that's not at all. It's a high calling. It's a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. And then that that there would be courage for the Christians that are in, called to these offices offices that are serving in, in the civil government, that they would have the courage to stand by uh, by the truth. And then I'd also say a, a prayer for, uh, I've often said a prayer for revival, although I think, uh, Joe, you'd say, mm-hmm. well, actually, we first need reformation mm-hmm. and then and then revival comes out of reformation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so prayers for that as well. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Well, is that all the time we maybe have there, Ryan? Yeah, or? We're, we're going on for over an hour or so. I oh. know that uh, they... They say that a great question is a simple question that has no simple answer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've had you know, a small handful of questions. I know that there were others that we didn't get a chance to get to. We're all of our, well, Wes uh, isn't able to be with us, but Joe and Andre are gonna be here throughout the week. Uh, this is a big part of why we're here at the Runner Academy, so that we can have these conversations, so that we can, ask and work through some of these questions. We're really glad that uh, you guys could be here. Uh, We're really glad to all of you for listening and tuning in. This has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding all of us that from him and through him and to him, did I get that in the right order? That's Jesus Christ, are all things. And to God be the glory. And we'll see you again soon.
passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. 